This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. So as you guys know, we always try to book guests that either bring the Havoc or the Journal part to this show. This week's guest, I think, really skews towards the Havoc and the resulting unintended consequence of Havoc. And my guest, of course, that I'm talking about is world-class guitarist Michael Bard. Michael's done a ton of work in his life with veterans uh, for art therapy and helping them with music. Um, he has been a guitarist from you know, 11, 10, 11 years old, so just about born with a guitar in his hands. Um, and, you know, incredible guitarist. And we talk a lot about guitar craft and all that stuff. And his love of veterans and the community and all that stuff. But really what blew me away about Michael was his familial story about his father, a Ukrainian captured by the Nazis, who then ended up serving in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, it's an incredible story. Um, refugee immigrant stories like this, not to mention like, you know, not concentration camp, but work camp survivors of the Nazis. I mean, stories about that is moving. And Michael is truly the product of a liberated captive. I mean, somebody who appreciated freedom in all its forms after having been deprived of it. And to see Michael blossom is really the best of America. Yeah. I mean, this was an episode that had me um, teared up like right from the start. Just an incredible story. So, um, can't wait for you all to hear from Michael himself. I did also want to mention, um, it, you know, Michael is has just been an incredibly gracious person. He and his wife Deborah kind of surprised um, my nonprofit, Veterans Repertory Theater, by calling us a couple months ago and saying, "Hey, we want you guys to be the beneficiaries." of a concert we're holding at Carnegie Hall on November 4th. Pretty incredible, right? 
Um, so it wasn't a lot for us to do. We just stood there and looked pretty and all that. But we do talk about the concert a decent amount because, um, you know, how do you not? I mean, if you're going to play Carnegie Hall, it's kind of a big fucking deal. Um, so I'll say it again at the end. But if you're interested in getting tickets to Michael's concert, get them fast because it's already more than half sold out. Um, you can go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And on there, just a little bit of ways down the homepage, you'll see the option to buy tickets for Michael's show. So um, we'll see you there. And if you're a veteran and want free tickets, you can email us at info at vetrep.org and we'll put you on a list. And uh, as donated tickets come in, uh, we'll send them your way. So that's a whole bunch of really cool stuff happening there. We're incredibly grateful to Michael and his wife, Deborah, for even thinking of us for that. Um, but going to be a very cool event at Carnegie Hall. And how badass is that? Okay. This is a, um, yeah. This this would have me crying and nerding out uh, with just a wildly talented musician, and there's that's fun stuff. That's a fun place to play in, uh, just to go down uh, all the rabbit holes you can with music influences, and uh, really getting uh, nerdy on music with Michael Bard was just a pleasure. Um, but again, against the backdrop of you know a true triumph of the human spirit in his family, so just. A, a really incredible conversation that I could not have been more privileged to bring to you all. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Michael Bard's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, thanks, Chris. Glad to be here, and uh, you know, happy uh, happy Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> I know we got a busy Wednesday because we, we're going to be zooming again later tonight, right? We're going to get sick of yes. seeing each other on Zoom. It's hey, impossible. Man. We have no legs, and we're both just floating heads because uh, at yeah, this well, point, that's all we do is talk to each other on Zoom. Hey, but um, cool. hey, no, it's it's a first world problem, man. It's and uh, in my intro, so I'm not going to reiterate it for everybody here, but I've talked about the event that we're going to do. At Carnegie Hall that you're putting on. When I say mm-hmm. we, I mean, yes. we're kind of riding side, we're riding, you know, in the in the sidecar for that. Um, but dude, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this when I was thinking about talking with you today. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I fully appreciated how tied into the veteran community you were. And I'm going to blame Jesus for this because we both know and love Jesus. <laughs> but I was like, you know, because when Jesus first uh, when you came up and you were going to do the festival, yeah. and Jesus was like. Hey, he's like, uh, you know, the guy that I play with, and that's why how you were always refer, you know, my accompanist and all this. And I was like, and he's like, Michael, and he kept talking about you. And I was like, I feel like there's more to this guy than you're saying, but I don't know what it is. Um, mm-hmm. let's just start with let's just start with that. Okay. Why do you care about the veteran community so much? Just give people an overview of that, because I think that's really interesting and under talked about. Okay, number one, first and foremost, my dad, uh, he was in the Air Force. He's an Air Force, was an Air Force vet. He's no longer with us. But uh, long story short, he was a prisoner of war in, uh, in Nazi Germany back in the, the late 1940s. Um, he, he's Ukrainian, was Ukrainian. And, um, you know, essentially he was, you know, thrown onto a, 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 a train. His, um, his family was accused of harboring Jews and, um, uh, was, it, was it true? 
kind of. This these two Jewish families were living on my grandfather's uh, farm in Ukraine for years and years, helping out with the farm work, and they didn't know they were going to be a liability. Right. So right. Uh, basically, um, somebody squealed when Hitler came through, and um, my dad and his dad were uh, basically given fifteen minutes to gather whatever things they wanted to take. They were thrown onto a train. My father was transported to, to Germany. Um, they actually rode on top of the train. He told me because the train was packed, and uh, you know, got to where they were. And my father was essentially made to work in a steel mill from seven in the morning to seven at night. And uh, the other side of that story is my grandfather actually jumped the train, uh, made it back to Ukraine, uh, and you know, uh, lived safely for the next uh, few few decades. But anyway, my dad was able to uh, come to America, and um, he worked in a factory briefly and back in it's 1951, I believe. There's a newspaper article about him in the, the Buffalo Times. Um, really great picture of him standing with the, the people who brought him over. But um, he said, you know, I don't want to be a factory worker the rest of my life. I'd, I'd like to do something to honor this country. So he joined the Air Force. Joined the Air Force. And, uh, you know, he was, I think, all of uh, 19 or 20 years old. And um, he served in the Korean War. Loved it. Um, coincidentally, went to a uh, 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 you know, an assembly one day with his his uh, his comrades, and there was uh, a speech uh, about this GI Bill, and he's said, "What is this GI Bill? And why you get to go to school for free?" My dad turned to his friend and said, "You get to go to school for free on the GI Bill," <laughs> and he was just really thinking, "It's like, man." I could never afford to, to go to school, if, you know, because it's, it's such a high cost. But um, anyway, the the Air Force enabled him to, to use the, the that program, the GI Bill, to, to go to college where, you know, eventually he met, he met my mom. Um, he went to Ohio State University. He studied math, met my mom at uh, Middlebury College in Vermont. Uh, they got married, you know, a couple years later. And then I popped out uh, a couple years <laughs> after that. So, so but, um let, let me be clear. I mean, this mm-hmm. is going to be your episode, and I want to hear about you, but okay. I can't let all this stuff go. I mean, yeah. That's that's unbelievably fascinating. I mean, can the I, fact can I just that he's alive. A, yeah. No, sure. 100%. Can I break down a couple of things? First off, sure. so wait, they're put on the train back to yes. Germany. Yes, sir. Your grandfather jumps. jumps off the train. And he tried to get my dad to jump. My dad, he was 15 years old. He said, hell no, I don't want to jump. I don't want to really? die. <laughs> Holy shit. So yeah. he tried to take him, and it's just your dad wouldn't jump. He wouldn't jump. No, Would, mother was there. Was no, nope, no. Nope. The the girls were separated from the men, dude. And it was like, hey, holy shit! You know, basically, say your goodbyes now because uh, we're in control, and what we say goes. And I just can't it, imagine when I was fifteen years old. You know, plus on the other side of that story, Chris, my dad was studying German in his Ukrainian high school at the time, so he had to act as the translator between my father. My, my grandfather and the the Nazis who were getting ready to take them captive. Where are the Jews? Show us. And my my grandfather blatantly lied, and so my my dad's like, I don't know. <laughs> so you know. so with when they were separated, did he ever see his mother again? He never saw his mother again. He did uh, correspond with his dad through letter letters uh, over the years, and. Um, I, I remember when I was a little kid, uh, he made a, a transcontinental phone call, and uh, I got to say Happy Father's Day to my grandfather. I think I was like eight or nine years old, and just to hear my grandfather's voice—he couldn't speak English, obviously—he was you know, Ukrainian. He was saying "Dusha dobra, diakuyu," 
you know, thank you very much. Uh, glad you're in America, that sort of thing. But, you know, basically the, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, armed services saved my, my dad. Holy shit. And then, Wait. you know, as a token of his appreciation, you know what, I'm going to sign up for the Air Force and pay my respects yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to that. So, um, and it was Wait. shortly after it had, it had been named the uh, U.S. Army Air Corps, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it became the uh, Air Force. And my dad said, "That's what I want, man." So, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I'm not asking you to play amateur psychiatrist, but my no. God, what what was his relationship like with his father after? I mean, he never got to see him again. I mean, was he hurt? Was he a, a piss that his dad was able to get off the train? He wasn't. Um, like, what, he never was. He, he never uh, expressed any anger or animosity. Uh, toward his dad you know it's just it was like well it's what my father wanted to do and i'm glad that he's still alive and um it was uh th- there was never any hatred between the two of us they, they were never at odds we would get letters from ukraine every once in a while in ukrainian i couldn't read it so my dad would translate you know and my grandfather's name was stepan Stephen. And he would just you know, write kind things. I'm so glad that you've made it to the, the land of opportunity. And thank you for serving this country. And coincidentally, his uncle John, my dad's uncle John, lived in Toronto. And he was in close contact with, uh, with my grandfather as well. So they would share stories at the dinner table about um, how you know, my grandfather was such a, a brave man uh, to do what he did. <laughs> oh, my God. So, but, yeah. I mean- I'm amazed that they never were able to see each other, though. No. And in fact, I got to be honest with you, Chris, after uh, Chernobyl, um, you know, that whole nuclear yeah. incident, my dad just said it would be too hard for him to take because um, he didn't want to see the devastation. And it just wasn't. Um... Plus, he said, why would I leave the United States of America to go back to that that place where the you know horrible experience uh, happened? And he just said, America's the best, you know, USA. And. Um, I just remember, you know, going to sporting events and you know, concerts and they would play the national anthem. My dad would always have his hand in his heart, a little tear in his eye, um, just because he was so proud to be here. And, um, it was, uh, he, he was a good man. You know, <laughs> it's funny. He said, you know, don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. I said, but dad, you lied to the Nazis. So, well, <laughs> I had to. <laughs> I Depends who it is you're lying to, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Mike, yeah. But so, yeah. so, I mean, what was it like growing up in that house? Did, was, were those experiences, did they kind of hang over the house? Was it something where like every day you're acutely aware or was it kind of never talked about? And my dad really never, never really talked about it. Never okay. talked about it. But um, one thing that was very, very visceral for me is when my father died um, back in January 2001 um, at the funeral service, uh, they presented the flag, you know, in, in the, the U.S. flag. And they folded it and put it in the box and handed it to my mom. And that was a very, very emotional thing for me to to witness because I, I'm just thinking about, you know, here's this 15 year old kid. He's abducted from his home. Um, he comes to the United States. He serves in, in the, the air force, the, you know, the, the organization that he just so honored and um, uh, was, was true to and, and loyal to. And then now they're honoring him uh, at his funeral service. And I just thought this is really cool. How, how things uh, have, have come for full circle because, you know, out of, um, out of respect to this country, he said, you know, I really want to give back 
to you guys for giving me my freedom. And um, I've got copies of uh, his affidavit where he you know, swore to become an American citizen and not to be subversive. And, you know, uh, but he always said, you know, America's the best. Anybody who tells you, you know, any different, they've, they've not lived uh, how, I, how I've lived. So my dad was, he was great. You know, he was uh, agnostic, probably even atheist, but probably, you know, one of the most loyal, um, honest guys uh, you'd ever want to you'd ever want to meet. And for him to have the opportunity to serve this country as he did, that was one of his proudest times in, in, in his life. He was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. And I just remember seeing him, you know, pictures that my mom still has of him shaking hands with the commanding officers, you know, getting his certificates and whatnot. And it was just, you know, he was just so beaming um, because he was able to, to give back. What did he, how did he get out of Nazi? Um, okay, so the, the war ended, the American liberation. Oh, you know, okay. go USA, man. And wow. um, he was, so he was there throughout the war. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. He was put into a displaced persons camp. And this is kind of an interesting, strange story. He became best friends with the son of a priest, <laughs> Father Joseph Tchaikovsky. I'll spell that for you later. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the guy had kids before he became a priest or something. Wow, go figure. Okay, <laughs> but yeah. uh, in in this displaced persons camp, my uh, dad and his son became best friends. They learned what it was to be a good American citizen. And my dad said, "This is all I've dreamed. I just like want to go there so bad." Because Father Joseph and his family, they were getting ready to go on the ship to to go over there, and wow. it's in this newspaper article from the Buffalo Times. It's just really cool. So he. He said to my dad, you know, I promise to get you over to this country somehow, some way. And you know what? Father Joseph Tchaikovsky fulfilled his promise. And he was able to bring my father over through the Catholic Relief Services. Oh, wow. And there's a picture of him, like I said, standing there proudly with just a suitcase, man. Can you imagine? You're you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, and you're standing right there. You don't know how to speak the language. You don't have a place to live. You don't have a job. You're there, you know, uh, at the uh, grace of other people who believe in you. And, um, you know, it's just because he became friends with this priest's son. It's like there was that connection, you know, had that not happened, probably what would happen is you know, they would have sent him back to, yeah. to Ukraine. I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, that story, but, um, he was, um, in a, a very, very fortunate, position so yeah the, the priest fulfilled his promise to bring him over and um yeah just a very very cool you know it's like a made for tv movie oh 100 percent. when when was it like pulling nails to get details from him or did he eventually just kind of break down and tell you one time i'll tell you one time what happened like how what was that like uh it wasn't like pulling teeth or nails but he did uh i think one or two times and and that was it and prior to uh, his his passing, um, when I brought my fiance over, she asked him questions about his youth, and he actually told the the whole story again. And um, so it's you know it's documented. My mom knows all the details, and in fact, through the years, my mom relayed more details than than I did because I think my dad, you know, he was a sensitive guy and uh, didn't really really want to live relive the pain. Um, 
you know, it's not like he had you know, yeah. P- PTSD or anything like that, but, uh, you know, it's not, you know, when you go through something like that, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll tell my story, but I don't want to keep repeating, repeating, repeating yes. because I yes. might become uh, des- desensitized to it and it won't um, have the, the emotional effect that, that it, it needs to have. But yeah, Peter was a good man. <laughs> That's incredible. In, in fact, what I got to say, when I was uh, 18 years old, I had three choices after high school, get a job go to school or join the service. Well, I was that close to join the air force. Cause you know, as a musician, I wanted to play in the air force band. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, I, I, uh, I chose to, to go to college instead. And, um, I'm, I'm glad that I did, but you know, partially that decision was based on the fact that my dad served and I wanted to, to honor, honor him as well. Did you grow up on bases? I did not. I did not, but we grew up in Dayton, Ohio, which I'm sure, you know, is the home of Wright Patterson air force sure. base. Um, one of the biggest, well, at the time, one of the biggest Air Force uh, bases in, in the world. And I remember going to summer camp there and just, you know, going into the hangars and seeing the planes. And it was just yeah. you know, truly inspiring. And, um, you know, to this day, I still uh, just uh, get shivers and when, when I go back and, and visit. It's uh, the Air Force Museum is there. And it's yeah, just sure, really, sure. really cool to be able to, to see the history. You know, and um, what was it? What was it your dad did then for a job? Okay, so he didn't really go into much detail, but he said he basically sat at the desk and wrote letters um, to be delivered to the um, the officers uh, to to the vets who were killed in combat to present to the families of of the vets. So basically, he that was his job. Condolence letters, yeah. For who? Like, who was he doing that for? Uh, I guess he would write the letters and then pass them to his commanding officers, and then they would, you know, send them to the guys who would come knock at the door. I'm sorry, wow. Mister and Mrs. Jones, your son Chad has passed in, in uh, war, and you know, um, at least that's that's what I remember. He may have had other duties; he probably right. did. Right. But um, one kind of funny story is the fact that you know his last name was actually Bardetsky. Okay, but. Why is my last name Bard? Yeah, B-A- yeah. B-A-R-D. I'll tell you why. It's because uh, when he was in Hawaii, he missed his port of call because his commanding officer was taking role, you know, Jones, Smith. And then he didn't say Bardeski. He said something like Bardekages, or because there's a Y-Z-J at the end of my dad's name. My dad didn't understand it, so he missed, his, <laughs> missed the boat. <laughs> his officer was pissed. And he said, okay, from now on, Peter, your last name is Bard. B-A-R-D. And so they chopped off the rest. So it's no longer Bardetsky. (laughs) Holy crime. Really? Yeah. yeah. And most people, if they say, Michael Bard, is that your stage name? Because Bard, you know, that's like, you know, you're you're a poet, you're a musician, you know, you're in the arts. That's really cool. I said, no, that's actually my my last name. Kind of, (laughs) (laughs) but not really. Yeah. So so was your dad career? Did he, did he do a full 20 years? What did he, he do? He did, uh, I, I, did, I believe it was only four years, but okay. um, All right. still. Gotcha. Uh, and yeah. well, he did say though, he was thinking about making a career, but then when he, when this whole thing about the army GI bill, you can go to school for free. Yeah. Oh my God. It's just like the floodgates open. And he's up. like, dude, I am going to take yeah. advantage of this. Yeah. Thank you. Uncle Sam. Yeah. Uh, because he felt like he was taken away, even though he got to you know study um, in, in high school at this displaced uh, uh, 
prisoners camp in, um, in, in, in Germany. Um, he just felt like his, his education had been cut off, stilted. So, uh, this was a, an opportunity for him to go in and complete his education. So he got uh, his, his degree at Ohio State University in math, and then he wanted to continue with more education. So he went to Middlebury College, like I said, where he met my mom. He was getting his uh, master's degree in Russian, of all things. <laughs> my mom wow. was studying Russian too. So they wow. met and, uh, you know, it's interesting. He was 15 years older than she was, than she is. She's still alive. Um, and uh, they just ended up uh, talking and being together and, um, like and was I he said, a professor? Was he a professor? He was actually a math teacher at the, at our local high school when I was wow. a kid at Fairview High School in Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, uh, you know, that was his contribution to, to society because he, he truly believed that education is, you know, is key. You know, you yeah. want to get ahead in life. You know, you got to go to school. You got to make your mind uh, a better thing, a powerful thing. Just, you know, try to, to grow. And, yeah. um, so yeah, he was uh, a proud math teacher. And in fact, when when he passed away, dozens and dozens of his students showed up to the funeral, just you know, with glowing. You know, your dad was the best math teacher I remember, Mister Bard. You know, they used to call him the Count because you know the Count from Is Sesame Street. Because my dad had an accent, and he was like yep. very good. So <laughs> you did your algebra really great. So <laughs> the Count, yeah. So then, yeah. How, what were you like then as a kid? Did you immediate? Were there a lot of? Were you were you drawn to math, or did you were you completely the other way? Like, what was the environment I, like for you? I sucked at math. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was good. I was good. You know, uh, what's what's the old saying? All the, always the, uh, never the fall apart from the tree. Yes, yeah. something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to say something like a carpenter's the shoemaker or something like that. There's an analogy <laughs> out there, but anyway, um, I was good until about uh, high school, and then I just um, music is really what uh, sort of took me down a, a different path because, um, you know, I, I picked up guitar when I was 11 years old and I said, this is so great. And you know, originally I wanted to be a drummer. My parents said, no way we're not having drums in the house. <laughs> um, but you know, what's, yeah. what's cool is my, my parents and especially my dad, cause you know, he never said, okay, you got to do it. The main thing was get a good education. I don't care what you do. Just please just go to school and exercise your mind and, you know, get some, some knowledge up there, dude, because that's that's key to, to living a successful life, which I truly believe it is. But he was never one to say, okay, you got to go into this career or that career. You know, when I said, I'm thinking about joining the Air Force, that he said, oh, okay, great. And then yeah. a few weeks later, dad, I'm thinking about maybe going to school instead. Okay, great. Interesting. <laughs> you know? uh, but Interesting. they were, my parents were school teachers. So here's the thing, Chris, they were tough, but they were fair. Okay. And they were never the type of folks who uh, would try to, to uh, push us into the, you know, a certain um, level of, of, of uh, field of study. Yeah. They just, they believed in, you know, freedom of choice and you know, letting us, yeah. letting the kids uh, yeah. follow what they wanted to do. And I think the main reason is because my dad's freedom was taken away when he was, yeah. when he was a young kid. It was like, you know, I don't know what my, my kids decide. Whatever it is they want to do, I'm, I'm just I'm just gonna go on a tangent for a second. But you know what it makes me think? My my favorite band of all time is Rush. And oh, I love I, Rush. I've I, seen them like right? ten times. <laughs> oh, I, I was such a huge fan. And, and one of the yeah. things that always stood out to me uh, when I would defend and explain to people why they were the greatest rock band of all time uh, was that um, I was like, you know, Getty and Alex's parents both came through the war and yes, through the Holocaust yes, and through absolutely. the concentration camps. Yep, and I was yep. like, 
you know, there's something about that next generation and the freedom accorded to them. And it might not be something that the parents understand, but they're like, hey, we're here in Canada. You have all these choices. And it was, did you see the same thing with you in music where like you went to music and like your parents are super supportive because like, yeah, there's just, there's color, there's lushness, there's, there's this freedom that you can have that he didn't get. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. In fact, um, there's a, a documentary. It's uh, with Alex Lifeson and a whole bunch of other kids. They basically lived in a house and outside of Toronto when they were like, you know, late teens, early 20s. And it shows Alex's parents coming over. They have a big dinner party and his parents are kind of, you know, telling him about what their experiences were. were and, you know, Alex, are you sure you want to be a musician? Because, you know, <laughs> think, you know, what do you just think about what could happen? You know, what, what would happen? And, and all that, but um, you know, coincidentally, you know, Alex became a famous rock yeah. star a few years right, later. But right. one of my one of my favorite lines, because I'm a huge Rush fan, I, that was my first concert actually, 1982 at wow. the University of Dayton Arena. They they were uh, in town. I think it was a 12 year old kid and 11 or 12, and um, it was it was great. And they played my favorite song, Free Will. You know, and I love that uh, line. Um, yeah. You know, I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. Um, you know, Permanent Wave is one of my all-time favorite yeah. albums by Rush, if not you know any other rock band. But um, uh, when I when I think back to to um, to those days, you know, like I would say, yeah, I want to go see this concert. And my dad, Rush, what is Rush? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went, and it was great. And um, the funny thing is, the um, the phone at my parents' house kind of came off the hook, so we were calling, trying to get a ride back. My friend Chris and I, with our, you know, to get a ride back to our house, and it was the busy signal. You know, back in the days when it was a busy yeah. signal. Yeah. <laughs> I love the eighties, but uh, anyway, you know, we're standing there waiting, waiting. And my friend Chris says, you know, why don't we just walk home? I said, I don't know. It's kind of a long walk. So around 1230 in the morning, my dad's car comes barreling down into the parking lot of, you know, Uni- university of Dayton <laughs> arena. And it's like, why didn't you guys call? <laughs> I said, we did. Dad. We did. So he gets home and then he looks at the phone. He's like, Oh, it was off the hook. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah. What, what? So, when did you get into guitar? Why did you get into guitar? Why did that uh, call you? Okay, I was, uh, I think, ten or eleven years old when I picked up the guitar. But um, primarily because of pop music, um, specifically okay. because of the band, the band Kiss. You remember Kiss? Really? The guy, yeah, yeah, of course, the, sure. The, the makeup yeah. and you know, breathing fire and spitting blood, and they had the costumes and the lights and the you know, fire and stage show and the whole production and all that. And my brother and I were just huge fans. We had, you know, posters of Kiss plastered all over our bedroom walls, wow. you know. Um, so that was the the main thing. But it wasn't so much the music. I mean, I liked the music. I still like them to, to this day, but it was more the, the spectacle, the pageantry, the visual and all that. So um, I, yeah, I wanted to be Peter Chris. I wanted to be the drummer yeah. with all that big rack of yeah. drums and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents said, no, no drums, as I mentioned earlier. And they just yeah. said, how about another instrument? So I said, oh, all right. So the, the band instructor was coming around from classroom to classroom. He had a trombone. So I, you know, he said, Michael, I want you to come try out this trombone. So I'm, and he said, man, <laughs> you're actually, you got some good breath, man. You want to try the trombone? I said, well, let me go home and talk to my parents. And um, I just remember my sister sitting there going, trombone? That's such a nerdy, <laughs> nerdy instrument. Are you sure? I said, oh, okay, well. And then I said, what about the guitar? And my parents said, okay. So they signed me up for guitar lessons. And uh, 
at my school, at my public school, there were group guitar lessons for kids. And I started wow. late. I started the class like two weeks late. So I get in there and all the kids are playing, you know, C, G7, and they're switching back and forth. And I, by the time I got to the G7 chord, they were back on the C and I was so frustrated. I said, man, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. So I went home and I told my parents and they said, no, you stick with it. You signed up for it. You see it through the rest of the semester. If you don't like it at the end of the semester, then you you can go and do something else. So I went home and I practiced like a mofo and i just really wanted to catch up with those kids so i did and i caught up with them and then i got better than them <laughs> and yeah. it got to the point where i was showing kids how to play just little things like you know smoke on the water uh, you know uh, yeah. just some some rock classics um so i was i was hooked from that point on and my parents said okay if you do really well in school then um, we'll buy you an electric guitar because i really wanted an electric guitar and my yeah. parents said yeah. okay no just practice your little acoustic and you know, well, if you make good grades, then you try your best and we'll, we'll, we'll honor you and gift you that electric guitar. So I got my first electric guitar and an amplifier and I'm so happy. And I remember the first song I learned was Eye of the Tiger. I was just like, man, it sounds so much better on the electric. Yeah. 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 And what, and what did you, were you the kid that was running home to practice guitar? Absolutely. You love doing it. Absolutely. And you know what? Um, I was involved in some sports. I played baseball as a kid and I played soccer in high school, but it was for the example, for an example, just to the point where I would come home, I would just play, 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 and then you know, do my homework and play more. And then it was dinner time. And my dad would say, okay, kids, it's time for dinner. Cause back then we would all sit together at the dinner table as a family. You know, it wasn't just every man for himself and just go sit in front of the TV. TV was always off. We were sitting at the table having a discussion. How was your day? What did you learn at school? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, it got to, to some, sometimes to the point where I would be up in my room practicing. My dad would have to come up two, three, four times. Mike, come on. It's dinner time. <laughs> it's like, Dad, oh, I just, just want to wow. play, you know, because I was and, uh, learning so many cool songs. I didn't want to stop. <laughs> and, and in your kind of pre-teenage mind or even teenage mind as, as mm-hmm. years went on, what did you think was going to happen? What was your, what was your daydream? What was your fantasy? Did you have visions of starting your own band of opening for Kiss? Like, what what did you think? You yeah, were do ab- with it? Ab- absolutely, all that all that stuff. And in fact, I did uh, start several bands in high school. I was a band in college. Um, my high school band was called the Nothings, and we actually amounted to nothing. <laughs> but, you know, we've got some, so we've got some old recordings that uh, I, you know, I still have, and I listen, listen back, and it's just kind of laugh. But it was a fun, creative time in my life, and I think that that was that was the key. It's just I wanted to create. You know, I didn't necessarily want to be a you know a big famous rock star. I mean, it would have been you know nice, but I just wanted to to do something creative, and I. You know, here I am all these decades later and I'm still doing something creative. Yeah. You know, I'm writing, I'm, I'm performing, I'm doing all kinds of cool things. I'm published. It's, it's, it's great. Um, but back then, I think I was just so in the moment that, uh, you know, things like superstardom and, you know, being, yeah, right. you know, in front of, you know, opening up for Rush or whatever. Um, yeah. I guess that from time to time that would cross my mind. But, um, it was just the fact that, hey, I, I'm able to, you know, play this instrument and, and, uh, just make myself happy. I mean, that's, I found my happiness when I picked, picked up a guitar, you know, and so every time I, I yeah. pick it up, it's, it's still it's just so, so visceral, you know, it never gets old, never gets old. 
That's so. It's it, do you did you ever hear that James Hetfield interview where he talked about like how he goes into another world when he's playing guitar, and he just can't and he loses track of time. He's yeah. just complete. Is that true for you? Is that your happy place? Absolutely. And it's uh, I love Metallica and I love uh, the James Hetfield interview because I know what you're talking about. Um, you know, without that, I mean, in fact, a student of mine because I you know, teach full time as well. Uh, a few years ago, I was like, "What would you? What do you think he would have done if he didn't?" end up playing guitar and, you know, teaching yeah. and writing. I said, Oh man, I never thought about that. That's, woo, I don't, wow. I don't think I could even imagine what life would be like because it is such a visceral part of my being such a connection to my soul. Um, just having that positive vibration. And, you know, I think that's why I'm, you know, such a happy guy. Cause I love sharing it with others too. Yeah, you know, so um, it's truly yeah. like you're. Yeah, I, I that makes so much sense to me. For some reason, I I knew going into this, I was like, I don't think Michael's gonna come in and go. Yeah, I picked up the guitar after college. You know, it's like no, <laughs> no. You know, he's a lifer. He's, this is yeah, you yeah. know, dangerously close to being born with a guitar in your hand. Yeah, but you know what's what's interesting? Not to interrupt is um, I started with you know the rock and the pop and all that. Yeah. But then I heard a recording of Andres Segovia, the great Spanish guitarist, yeah. and said, "Oh man, I want to play like those guys." And my dad says that's not those guys that's that guy so what are you talking about because he was playing a song called leyenda it's a spanish uh, guitar really you know, showstopper piece and it sounded to me like it was at least a guitar duet maybe even three guys because it was finger style and i had never played finger style i was always playing with a thick so um i eventually you know went to study classical guitar and you know, um, finger style, uh, rumba flamenco, which is, you know, a very popular, uh, upbeat style of, of uh, Spanish guitar. Um, so I, I still play with a pick, but you know, I like to do the, the Spanish uh, finger style stuff too, as, as you'll hear at the upcoming. Yeah. Concert. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I want to get into that. Um, mm-hmm. especially the technical stuff here in a second, I want to mm-hmm. just paint the journey a little bit. Um, as we go there, who were your influences coming into high school, college, who are you listening to? Was it still Kiss? Had you moved on from that? Like, who were you finding yourself fascinated with? Okay, so uh, I was a child of the '80s. I grad- graduated high school in '87. Okay. Um, so, of course, late '70s, I was into Kiss, um, and then um, I got heavily into the Beatles. Okay. Beatles were uh, heavily influential, especially George Harrison. He was he was my main influence. It was, he was the dark horse, you know. He wrote yeah. a few hits. But, um, you know, he was sort of overshadowed by Lennon and McCartney. But um, Queen, I became a huge Queen fan. Loved uh, Brian May. He was one of my, is one of my heroes. Um, Rush, you know, when I heard uh, uh, Tom Sawyer, I was hooked. You know, they were my first concert. Um, and then uh, in the 80s, it was all the metal bands. Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Ozzy Osbourne, and then... Hair metal, you know, poison, white snake, quiet wow. riot. You know, so you were like on trend with all of it, like because that's a pretty wide, diverse absolutely. group of listening. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And MTV was king back then, right? Yeah. So you could yeah. you come home and watch all these cool videos. Van Halen, I got to put Eddie at the top. You know, God rest his soul. He's definitely one of my top three guitar heroes of all time. Um, coincidentally, he and my other favorite guitarist, Brian May, they recorded an album together called Starfleet Project, which was, you know, just a, an EP, but it was um, something that I went out and bought immediately because I just loved hearing the two of them. 
play together on the same album. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, later in the, the 80s is when I uh, was influenced by the, the classical guitar repertoire. So I went from, you know, classic rock to heavy metal to, to classical gotcha. Spanish guitar. And, and during that time, what was what was the apex of those times? Was it just practicing in your room? Was it composing stuff? Was it being on stage? What did you find yourself yeah. really getting turned on by? You know, it, it was all of that, Chris. Plus the fact that we could go and play at a friend's house. They'd set up a stage and we'd have a party. And, wow. Um, wow. you know, it was uh, inspiring to see people, you know, watch me and go, man, that's pretty cool. Michael, you really know how to play that. Dire Straits solo from Sultan's uh, Swing or that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. solo from Spirit of Radio, you know. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Just to, to be able to, to share my passion with others on that level. But then, you know, later on that transcended um, to the apex of uh, graduate school and playing classical concerts and then, you know, being invited to, to study in, in Europe, sure. uh, Italy, specifically and playing um, the concerts all over Italy at the school that I went to. Okay, we gotta we gotta get to that. Yeah, I want I want to hear all about that. Let me let me um back up though to the, the high school thing. Did you, in high school, early college, did you find yourself outgrowing your taste? Did you find yourself getting bored with metal or with riffs? Did you find yourself becoming a proper guitar, guitar snob where you're like, uh, hey, I, when, I'm, I need something more complicated? Yeah, when I um, started really focusing on the classical repertoire, I kind of let go. I didn't totally let go of my electric because it was always it's always there with me. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I never abandoned those roots, um, but I did put it on the back burner, you know? So when I was in at Arizona state university studying classical guitar, it was, I was so focused on that repertoire um, that I just, I didn't, I didn't shun my electric, but I didn't give it as much time as I did previously because I wanted to excel at something that, you know, to my mind was you know, a little more, uh, a lot more challenge, actually. You know, the classical guitar is not an easy instrument to master. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you know, the guitar, you can, you know, bash away at, you know, chords. But, you know, when it comes to playing something, you know, like Leanda or anything by Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, it really takes a different mindset, a different focus, and it, you just have to ratchet it up uh, to a, a higher level. Why did you go to Arizona State? Because they gave me money for a scholarship. <laughs> okay, were and, they known? Were they known for classical guitar? Yes, yes. Okay. yes. At, the, at the time, Chris, they were one of the top five. Well, maybe top eight or ten schools for classical guitar instruction. So I sent out. I don't know. Probably I don't know five or, or or seven applications to all the guitar schools around the country. You know, Florida State was one of the top. Peabody Conservatory. Here in Baltimore was also is actually still one of the top, and then Arizona, um, Arizona State, and University of Arizona, and USC, as I remember, were the, the top schools. And um, so Arizona State said, "Yeah, hey, we'll give you a little money. This is this is great." So my parents said, "Okay, well, that's what you should do," because you know they were school teachers and they didn't have a lot of money to, yeah. you know, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. sell us, and they didn't want me to take out a whole bunch of student loans and you know getting a lot of student loan debt. So I uh, went to Arizona state and it was probably, that was the apex of my uh, early twenties, you know, youth experience because I got to be on my own for the first time 
you know, and I really had to prove myself. It was my job to make good grades and, uh, you know, study the guitar and play well enough and, you know, soak up all the knowledge. Plus, the really great thing is I was around a bunch of guys who were way better than I was. And you know what that does? That Our elevates you. And you, well, two things. You can either say, oh, crap, I'm not going to be ever that good. <laughs> Quit and go do something else. Or inspire and inspire me. It's like, dude, I want to be as good as Mark and Jason and Stephen. Um, so I really put my nose to the grindstone. And, and um, that was uh, a really, really cool experience in my life because it made me a better musician, I think, because I was around guys who were, you know, miles eons above what i was i went in there thinking hey i'm this i'm this cool kid from dayton yeah. ohio and i'm gonna show yeah. because you know, but, you know it was not the case it's like you you go in with certain expectations but then you realize oh, man i got a lot of work to do but it was good it was good because i needed that kick in the butt because right. if you get too comfortable and you get too cocky it's that's never a good thing sure i sure know what did you so first thing Am I crazy? But it seems like all those schools you listed mm-hmm. all are in areas with heavy Spanish populations. Like we're not yeah. talking about University of Minnesota, right? No. And it, no. is that is that coincidental? I, I don't know anything I, about the classic guitar world, but I mean, is Spanish guitar and classic guitar closely aligned? Is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's closely aligned. Yeah, yeah. I would say, and I think it's purely coincidental, Chris, because okay, you know, Arizona, uh, Arizona State, because you know they offered me the scholarship. Uh, Italy, which is the Latin country um you know uh they offered me a scholarship too so i i I went because my parents especially you know education is key and all that but um in terms of um you know uh the 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 spanish guitar and the classical guitar those are kind of one and the same although the classical guitar Mm. can span you know from france to italy to to spain to germany to the united states to south america whereas flamenco guitar which i play a little bit of i'm I'm more of a what's called a rombero i play gypsy rumba which is um just a one little sliver facet of of the whole pie that is flamenco i am not a a flamenco guitarist but i can i I dabble on that but um, the classical guitar is uh more i would say uh, a greater uh spectrum because you know flamenco that's spain a classical guitar yeah. can go from yeah. Europe to South America to North America to, to Asia to, to wherever. So, but when you say um, you know the, the the Spanish guitar, yeah, that's the Segovia repertoire. That could be you know a um, lot, lot of Spanish composers, Albanios, Granados, all those guys. But um, classical guitar you know, also includes the transcriptions of Johann Sebastian Bach. Music of the of the Renaissance, uh, music of the the Baroque guitar, music of the Romantic guitar. Um, so it's a, it's a bigger, bigger, gotcha. much bigger spectrum. Gotcha. Yeah. And then at Arizona State, what is it you were learning? What's your big technically? What was the takeaway? What was the difference? You're, well, Mike, these guys are so good, but I mean, how are they getting you better? Well. Um, they were inspiring and they showed me how to do things. They, they helped me improve my technique, specifically my instructor, Frank Kuntz, who I always got to give a big shout out to because he was the one who really helped me pay attention and focus on the details and be more careful. Um, and I wasn't really doing that previously. And uh-huh. these guys who I was around and my professor, Frank, said, Michael, you've, you've got so much potential, but you really need 
to hone in on this and focus more on this and refine your skills. And, you know, they didn't ever say we can promise you're going to be a better player, but they did say you work hard and, you know, good things will happen. And, and they did eventually. And I listened to old recordings of my audition tapes before I went to Arizona State University. And they're okay. Mm-hmm. They're okay. But mm-hmm. then I listened to, uh, you know, as a side note here, my mom really wanted a, a recording of my final master's recital at Arizona State, which I had an old cassette tape of, and I never converted it to a CD or an MP3, but I finally did for her birthday back in July. And I gave it to her. And then, so, but I, I listened to that, that recording and compared that to my audition tape. And it's like, no comparison. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, you know, a, a greasy little, you know, hamburger with French fries <laughs> or a filet mignon, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. dinner with, you know, champagne. I mean, not to toot, toot my own horn, but I really, when I hear it, I hear a huge difference because if I had just stayed in Dayton and just bashed away, I, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have grown so that the opportunity of being around all these great players and having such a great instructor really, really helps me elevate. You know, I wanted the knowledge and I wanted the skills and then I wanted to improve on all that. And I'm still, you know, climbing that mountain. You know, I'm never satisfied. Well, you're never going to get there, right? I mean, it's always <laughs> no. going to be the journey. Right. Yeah. 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 What if, what about performance wise? Did you, um, especially as someone that was captivated with the showmanship of Kiss, mm-hmm. yeah, and you know the MTVization of music and all that? Absolutely. Did you find, um, did you find any altering in your performance style? Did you find yourself maturing on stage in some way? What, what was that like? What was the showmanship yeah. part like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, when I started about playing rock guitar, you know, you you want to imitate. I wanted to imitate Alex Lifeson of Rush. I wanted to imitate Brian May of Queen. I wanted to imitate, you know, the metal guys who came later, the guys in Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and, you know, the the metal gods like Yngwie Malmsteen and uh, Steve Vai, you know, all these these guys. So I noticed that with all these guys, mostly, not some, Alex is a little more conservative you know great guitarist but he wasn't jumping around like, you know, Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, yeah, Um, right, right. (laughs) Uh, I think it was mm, maybe intentional that I kind of called from each of those guys and just sort of developed my own stage persona as it will. And that eventually translated into the you know, classical guitar because with the classical guitar, you just kind of, you know, sitting there and, you know, hopefully the audience is listening to what you're doing and really, really engaged, but you have to have a little bit more, Showmanship. Not that I'm going to jump around like Eddie Van Halen or anything right, like that, but right. that's um, it's, it's still on my roots. It's still on my my heart and soul. Um, so there was a lot more of of that showmanship, standing, you know, playing electric guitar, moving around, than there there was or is, um, you know, playing the, the classical uh, Spanish guitar repertoire. But I, I try to incorporate, you know. You know, a little bit of uh, showmanship in, into that as well, but it's uh, not to the point of it being theatrics. Right, I mean, I'm, right. I'm all about uh, theatrics, but there's uh, one guitarist I saw years ago, a Japanese guitarist, the Typhoon from the West is what they call him, or the Typhoon from the East. 
<laughs> one, one of those, uh, Kazuhito, yeah. Kazuhito Yamashita, and um, he, he's fabulous, just one of the top guitarists in, in the world. He would do things like he would strum a chord and then stand up from his chair, and, and, and then uh, it was just a little too over the top for me. And I said, I, you know, that's cool, but I don't think I want to go that far. Interesting. But um, I think you have to engage the audience, you know, visually and uh, orally. Um, yeah. um, you know, but at the, at the same time, you want to make sure that you know the the, the notes you play are as, as accurate as, as they, they can be. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. And yeah. at Arizona State, was there any focus on composition? Was that part uh, of I, it? I, I did take a composition class uh, with a fabulous instructor, Chenery Ung, U N G. Um, but some of the pieces that I what we were you know given assignments to write were not. Uh, guitar bass. Some of them were for ensemble, like wind ensemble, mm. piano, strings, whatnot. Um, but I was not 100% uh, enchanted with that class because it was more the sort of 20th century, cutting edge, cacophonous, really out there, esoteric oh. music that I can take in small doses, but I can't through sit through an entire night night of that. So my style of composition, as you'll hear at the Carnegie Hall concert, because I'm going to play two of my pieces, is more melodic, um, accessible. Um, some people even have even said, Michael, it's like pop classical guitar music, uh, which it, is that an insult to me? I don't care. I like it. You know, yeah, it's uh, yeah. stuff that I want to hear, stuff that I, I like to play. Um, but it's more in line with, uh, you know, what Segovia would have would have played, I think. I think so. Yeah. But my own style of composing is more melodic, you know? Yeah. And how difficult was that to learn and try out and develop and mature that when there is so much emphasis in that world on the cacophonous, on that stuff that you don't like? Right. Yeah. Right. 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 And I got to say, Chris, that's more of a, you know, sort of an ivory tower university professor mm. outlook it's where they you know they're always and that's nothing wrong with you know cutting edge and blazing a new trail and doing all that but i tried to really get into that 20th century guitar repertoire and um it just didn't speak to my soul it didn't it didn't hit me the way that it, it uh, the other other music that i was playing uh hit me so I, I took that class for one semester and it was great, but then I realized, you know what? I just, I'd rather write a song with three chords that has a nice melody. <laughs> yeah. And can yeah. relate to the, you know, sitting around at a campfire or whatever and people want, hey, that's pretty cool. Instead of, you know, pulling the strings and hitting the guitar and, you know, rolling around in jello. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. What, what's the difference for you emotionally <laughs> interpreting? an already established piece and doing your own stuff. Do you notice a difference? Is there emotionally just some different takeaway for you? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do. I think every artist uh, has their own, on, own take on a, a certain, well, on, on any given piece really. Um, so for example, for the, the concert that I'm playing, obviously I'm playing from the you know, music of the Spanish masters, some music of Bach, um, the, the songs that Jesus and I are, are doing together, those are all my own arrangements. He just mm -hmm. uh, asked me to, to do that for him. Um, but uh, the, the, the takeaway on, on that is 
I'll listen to a piece and then I'll go and watch YouTube or whatever and see how other players might play it. And I said, oh, that's pretty nice. That's pretty nice. But I think I, I would feel more in line with doing this phrase that way or playing this melody line that way. Um, and I think it's because of it's, you know, it's an amalgam of all this musical experience that I've accumulated over the years. So you can, I, I think of it as like a big stew. You got rock, jazz, classical, rumba, flamenco, you know, folk, country, all that. And it's just, it's all part of me. It's all in my, my heart, my soul, my mind, my fingers. And I just like to kind of mix it all together. You know, I'm a, I'm a smorgasbord guitar player. Uh, would be, yeah, 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 <laughs> so, yeah. So after Arizona State, talk about mm-hmm. what happened next. So this is when Italy came calling? Yeah, I was actually, uh, my, my uh, toward the end of my first year of graduate school at Arizona State, um, there was a professor who came from Italy. His name was Carlo Barone. Um, he passed away last year. God rest his soul. Again, a great, great freaking teacher. Um, and I played for him in a master class. And then um, I thought, oh, I, I did okay. Uh, the next day, my professor, Frank, says, Michael, would you be interested in going to Italy? And I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, Carlo was really impressed with you playing, and he thinks that you'd be a perfect candidate to come study at L'Accademia del Cento, which specializes in the music of the classical guitar, and specifically the music of the Italian uh, classical uh, guitar composers and the Spanish classical guitar composers. And I said, well, I don't know. It's, you know. It sounds like it's you know a pretty penny. I don't know if I can afford. He said, No, he's he's giving you a scholarship. All you got to do is pay for the plane ticket. And I said, Oh, I don't know if my parents are going to go for that. So I went home that night to my apartment. <laughs> I called my parents. I said, You know, this has happened, and this guy really wants me to come study, but we got to pay for the plane ticket. I know you guys don't have. The... And my dad says, No, no, you go, you go. We will pay for your plane ticket. Um, anything else? I said, no, the, the education is taken care of, the food, the room and wow. board, that's all taken wow. care of. Plus, we're going to be giving concert tours all up and down uh, Italy. We gave about, I don't know, 10 or 12 concerts. Um, so that was a fortuitous occurrence because I just played for the guy. And I thought, well, it's, this is really cool. That he's, and I, just, I remember that was my first ever European experience. And huh. to this day, Italy is still my favorite European country. But I learned a lot from the students there because there were guys there who were much better than I was. Then, you know, on, um, it, where, it, where was it in Italy? Where in Italy? Uh, in a very small town called Brezzo di Bedro, which is, well, Vegevano, which is in the lake region, northern Italy. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. La, La, Lago Maggiore is, uh, the, the, the campus was on Lago Maggiore. It was actually in a, in a, a house overlooking Lago Maggiore. So for people who don't quite know where that is, it's, you know, you go up the Italian countryside in Milan, and then you go further north, and then there's the Alps, the Swiss. We were 20 minutes from Switzerland. Wow. So, um, oh, yeah. yeah, and it was in the in summer. So the weather is beautiful. The weather was, was perfect. And that's yeah. how long it was. It was a summer program. It was a summer, summer program. It was the summer of 1993 or 94. Wow. Either 93 or 94. But um, I felt really fortunate. And then there was one other American um, who was invited as well. A great guy who I'm still friends with. His name's Douglas James. And um, he's really full bore on just you know, focusing on the repertoire of that era the the 19th century classical guitar repertoire so he only plays uh on period instruments you know instruments that were built um 
back back in that that time period or instruments that have been constructed to re- reflect the instruments of of the 19 uh late late uh 19th early I'm sorry late 18th early 19th century what did you take away from that experience when you left how were you different than when you got there um well the experience of having been in a foreign country and being around all these uh Wonderful Italian people, you know, the, the hospitality was, was so great, but I just remember feeling I'm learning all this really cool new stuff and I don't quite understand the language, but these people are so helpful. I, you know what it was? It was the same thing I experienced at Arizona State University. It's like these kids and these classmates and teachers were saying, you know, we, we love you. We embrace you. We want you to get better. And just put push me, and I guess that was the the experience was just to um, it it made me a better player. Yeah. When, did you shift focus at all after that? Did you go, hey, I know exactly the path that I want to go down, or I'm much clearer on the kind of music I want to be working on? Mm-hmm. Was there any of that? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 in fact, um, I wanted to, to continue on that path. You know, studying just classical guitar you know at that time i wasn't really playing much electric at all so when i got back to the states my professor frank said why don't you apply for a full fulbright scholarship so i did hopefully you know fully intending to go back to italy and study more i didn't get it you know those those uh, are not easy to come by sure i'm sure you know so um um my path took a different different direction um i ended up you know, getting married at a young age, moving to this area. Um, but then I slowly started getting back into the electric and into jazz, but I never lost the, the classical roots. And then eventually I started uh, studying uh, rumba flamenco. So had I gotten that scholarship and gone back to Italy to study, I probably would have um, probably would have stayed on more of a straight and narrow classical trek. But looking back, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't because I love playing rock and jazz and pop and you know country and all, all that other good stuff. I was just teaching a kid the other day how to play um, uh, uh, "New World Man." Oh yeah, sure. and he was like, "Oh man, that's based on a D major scale." I said, "Yeah, dude, it's pretty cool." And then he said, "I don't know if Alex Lifeson knows how to to play um, <laughs> if he knows anything about music theory or if he even knows how to to read music, but." Um, I just love to be, to be able to go back to when I was 11, 12 years old and, you know, listen to that music and then share it with uh, the young kids these days who really are, are into it. And it's an inspiring thing to be a teacher, to share my knowledge of, of that, that style. So when you left Italy, what did you think you were going to do? What was the plan? I thought I was going to be a college professor teaching classical guitar at a major yeah. university in the United States yeah. of America. Because that's the path, right? That's what you're that supposed is to do when path. you do all that, that's, right? Yeah. That's the path, yeah. yeah. And um, honestly, I think the majority of classical guitar teachers are you know, part-time adjunct. Yeah. Um, and nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm glad to be independent, quite frankly, because I call my own shots. If I don't want to, you know, take on a certain, you know, uh, gig or student or whatever, I say yes or no. And it's just, huh. just the way that it is. But um, I, I have a buddy who is a uh, 
He just got on tenure track at uh, Cal State Fresno. Wonderful friend. His name's Corey Whitehead. We've done three state, four state department tours together. But Corey's a classical guitarist, but he's also a rock and, and pop and all that. And I asked him about, you know, what it what it took to get that tenure track. And I said it was a you know, was it worth what you had to go through in order to get what you have now. And he goes, No. So first of all, the money's not that great. Second of all, I had to go through a lot of hoops, a lot of red tape, a lot of uh, you know, uh, administrative bureaucratic stuff. And um anyway, I'm I'm just saying that I'm I'm glad I'm I'm doing my own thing because I like being my own boss and just yeah. <laughs> calling you know, shots. I, I, you know, I did. I kind of glossed this over before, and I, I uh, just I'm thinking that this this would be something I would think about. What's the difference between when you were trying to get bands up, and even if you weren't super serious about them, you know, but college bands, high school bands, what's the difference in that dynamic versus the path you went down, where really the individual guitarist is everything you're a solo act yeah right 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 well actually i'm still in a band my wife and i have a group called trio caliente where well, we of course the spanish yeah, sure. thing and right. in fact our, our third partner ben who's going to be uh, playing some duets with me at the carnegie hall concert he's our third member uh, he, he lives in brooklyn but you know we still got that band dynamic thing going but you know when i was in high school and we we started with my best friend whose name was also is his name is also mike he um he didn't know you know anything about playing picking up a bass guitar because i wanted him to be the bass player <laughs> uh, and then our friend jim played drums so we just kind of put it together and um it was never you know you hear these stories about you know behind the music and whatnot of the bands getting into fights and you know there was always right. tension and you know blah 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 there was never any of that with me and my my ensembles ever because there were no egos and i refused to 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 play in a an ensemble at, you know, if I can help it where there's, there's egos, because that's just, that, that really stilts the creative process. It stunts the creative process. It's really not a good. So for me with the majority of the ensembles uh, with which I've, I've been involved, I would say it's, it's been pleasant and it's cool because as a soloist, yeah, I can be creative and you know have my own ideas and all that. But when you have ideas from other people who are, you know, hopefully as you know, creative yeah, as yeah, yeah. you want right. them to be, it's uh, it's great because it's uh, it, it builds you up and it makes you have more ideas and makes you realize this this could go in that direction and in that direction. Why not? Um, is so there any is there any part of you though that because I'm thinking of when you said you know as opposed to being a college professor, you're able to go and call your own shots now. Yeah. Is there any of that dynamic when it comes to music where it's like, all right, I love being with a group, but I can only be with them for a little bit. Cause now I really like to be the entrepreneur and just be solo out here by myself, do my own thing. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a good question, Chris, because I have been involved with a lot of other groups, like for example, the Coral Arts Society, Washington, DC, where they bring me into the Kennedy center. And, um, but those are very short lived performance opportunities because they only last for a week or two at a time sure. you know and eventually uh, you know Colin, not eventually but once in a while i will get a call from maybe a jazz singer who says i want you to come play with me on this project i'm giving a show at blues alley in washington dc these two dates can you come sure so we have a couple of rehearsals and it's great but it it's never a protracted endeavor you know it's always just really you know wham bam thank you ma'am 
you know, yeah. two weeks at the most, and then you move on to the next, um, the next thing. And same thing with recording projects. You know, oftentimes people will call me and ask me to come in and, and you know, be the hired gun to play guitar on a song or two, or you know, like with Jesus's album, the the yeah. entire album. Yeah, which yeah I was right. More than happy to do, and I was, you know, thankfully he asked me to to do all the arrangements. So, um, my experiences, you know, outside of just playing solo guitar, have been. I, I can't really say they've been. There have been any negative experiences. They've all been really positive and and uplifting let's talk let's talk about um now post italy what are the highlights what what blows you away what makes you go everything's starting to click Mm -hmm. everything's doing exactly what i wanted to do and um you're getting the feedback you want and you're feeling fulfilled Mm -hmm. what are what are some of the highlights what are some of the gigs that you're getting yeah okay so the first highlight was my first uh a piece Mediterranean Beauty, which was uh, a piece that I wrote for two guitars, that was published, um, and that was a real highlight to, to get a an email from this publishing company in England, Lathkill Music. Michael, we want to publish your piece. It just happened to get it in the right hands of a classical guitarist named Eleftheria Kotsia from Greece, who loved it. She heard it. They passed it to her. I signed off, and it was just like, "Wow, I'm vindicated." You know, I'm, I'm huh. actually a bona fide published composer. Yeah, um, and it's still to this day like the number one track on streaming uh, streaming platforms for my compositional output. So that would probably be the first first uh, feather in my cap. But then um, back in 2014, um, I got a, an email from the Choral Arts Society, Michael. Uh, we need your help. Jeff Skunk Baxter, who was a guitar player for the Doobie Brothers, is scheduled to play with us for our Christmas concerts. Um, but he can only do one or two. Wondering if you could come in and play the repertoire that that the conductor has requested. So I said, send it to me. Let me listen. I emailed him back. I said, yep, I, I, I can do that. So that eventually led to me being the featured soloist. Mm. Playing classical guitar for the Christmas concerts um, three times, I believe, at the Kennedy Center, and that was such a rush to play in front of you know twenty five hundred, three thousand people or whatever. Spotlight on me, and it's just I got to show my stuff and own it, and you know let these people know that I can deliver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's different absolutely. when you're with your band because when you're with a band, you can you know turn to other guys and interact, <laughs> but. When it's right. just you, it's like it's like you know playing golf. Okay, I gotta yeah. get this putt from twenty feet if I don't get it. Um, and you know, fortunately, I was uh, blessed with some some good reviews, and they asked me back again and again and again. So I, I guess I did something right. But you know, just to have that experience to play on this world-renowned concert stage—I mean, even looking back, I just can't believe. Wow, how did I? I don't even do that. So that's why, you know, mm. Carnegie Hall, I can't, man, I'm a Carnegie Hall virgin. So it's going to be probably the same feeling, butterflies in the stomach and, you know, really uh, just got to focus and, and do my thing. Well, and the danger is if you don't have them, right? You know, and then right. you're going flat. So yeah, it's all a good sign. Yeah. yeah. So, and then the other highlight was the State Department tours, four U.S. State Department tours with me and my friend Corey, you know, playing all over the Middle East, South America. North Africa. You know. what, what is that? Tell me about the State Department. What does that okay, so, mean? Yeah, uh, so the U.S. State Department, um, I'm sure you've heard of uh, the Fulbright uh, program yeah. where they 
In fact, um, uh, it was started, I think, back in the 1950s, where uh, the U.S. government would give grants to musicians to become essentially diplomatic ambassadors through music. Um, and so a buddy of mine, my friend Corey, Cal State Fresno, played at the Kennedy Center for their Millennium Stage Series. A woman came up to him after the concert, handed him her card. She says, my name is Judy Baruti. I work for the State Department. We have these concerts. Would you be interested in going on a diplomatic tour? And he said, sure. So he called me a couple days later. He said, Michael, we should put some duets together and do this as a guitar duo. I said, I'm there. <laughs> so um, basically, it was a grant that was given to us. And we thought, this is great. It was, uh, I think it was a five-country tour. So Saudi, Yemen, Morocco, Jordan. It was a five-country tour, and that was fabulous. Not a dud. Every concert was well attended. Who were the and, crowds? Um, well, we played. We played at all the U.S. embassies. Okay. At all the, the capitals, you know, for example, the embassy in Rabat, Morocco, the embassy in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, the embassy, the U.S. embassy. Of course, that's what I meant to say. The U.S. embassies, <laughs> uh, Amman, right. Jordan, uh, you know, Bahrain, and we also gave public concerts at venues uh, for for the public to come and and see, you know, at no cost because they were, you know. Uh, grants subsidized by the U.S. government, so it was not just embassy officials and yeah, their yeah. their crowd, but it was also people who may have never heard a classical yeah. guitar concert. Yeah. Have been to a class. so that was the first. And then we were asked to do another tour shortly after nine eleven, actually in Jordan and Kuwait. And I was telling all my friends, "Yeah, we're going back to Jordan and Kuwait." And my mom was, "Oh, don't go, don't go! I don't want you uh, to get assassinated." Uh, yeah. And you know what we got there? Nothing happened. People loved it. We were nobody tried to harm us. What's yeah. the difference in the crowds versus the states? Can you tell us? Yeah, you know, I think it's a crowd to crowd uh, variant because, although I gotta say, overseas we got a lot, a lot of standing ovations, a lot of applause, and and I think it's because Chris they weren't really familiar with that style of music. Plus we, th we threw in some American jazz and Duke Ellington and some Miles Davis and we made it more than just classical. It was like an amalgam of, of, um, you know, different, different music. So the variety uh, really, I think helped boost the crowd's appreciation. Um, but we get that, we got that here too, when we were you know, performing for the, for the U S crowds as well um although i gotta say you know i watched a documentary and i made the other night some of these south american crowds when they play in chile or colombia or whatever yeah. they're just so rad and then they you know they finish the concert and then the camera turns to one guy and he's crying because he was just so grateful that iron maiden came to my country and yeah uh, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, oh yeah well that's like a russian rio right like they oh went my gosh, like, yeah, they had no same. idea they had that many fans in, in, in brazil you oh know my gosh yeah, yeah. so yeah. crazy yeah. um so when did you get when did you get into the gypsy was it the rumba Gypsy Rumba is what it's Gypsy called. Gypsy Rumba. Or, or Rumba Flamenco. Why? Why did you get into it? And and what was the triggering mechanism? Yeah, it was, a for, it was definitely a fortuitous occurrence because uh, I was just sort of focused on the classical repertoire, playing a little rock, playing a little jazz, teaching in my studio. 
taking the odd gig here and there around the DC, you know, DMV area. Um, and when I arrived to DC, I think it was uh, a few years later, 97, 98, I met a guy named Ricardo Marlowe, who's great. He's one of the top flamenco guitarists in this part of the country, if not the, the entire United States. He's a true flamenco aficionado. I got to meet him. We played a couple of gigs together. A couple of years passed by, you know, we don't do anything. And then one night I'm walking to make copies of my resume at the local Kinko's print shop. <laughs> you remember that? Oh, this old cliche. And, yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I walk, uh, you know, and there's a restaurant called Bambalay. And I hear this guitar music. And I so oh, that sounds pretty cool. I'm not quite familiar with that style. So I walk, you know, I make the copies of my resume and I walk over, you know, it was a open air sort of, uh, patio. And I see my, my friend Ricardo and he's playing there with another guy named Miguelito and they're playing this gypsy rumba, gypsy King stuff. And you know, so I went and got a drink and I'm sitting there listening. And then some guy comes up to them and he requests a song, black Orpheus, a Brazilian song, which Miguelito didn't know. So Ricardo waves to me and he says, come over here. Can you play this song? I said, sure. So we played it. We played the duet. And then he says, what are you doing next weekend? I said, uh, nothing. Why? He said, well, because my partner, my other partner, not the guy he was playing with, my other partner got fired for basically doing, you know, insubordination. <laughs> he uh. said, I want to teach you uh, the Gypsy Rumba repertoire. I said, dude, that's a week away. He said, I'm coming to your house. What day? Let's let's make it a Tuesday. So he came over and I said, dude, I don't know how to play this stuff. He said, I'm going to teach you. So it was sort of trial by fire, really, because wow. he needed somebody to fit because he didn't want to just play solo. So he needed somebody to come and help accompany him and trade off on the solos. Huh. And I was not familiar with that repertoire at all. OK, so I went in there the next uh, Friday thinking, well, <laughs> I hope I can do this. So I had all my notes written out on a little sheet on a music stand and, um, and it actually went pretty well. So from that point on, I just started focusing more on that gypsy rumba style repertoire. And for the you know listeners who are not sure what that style is, if you just Google or type in you know Gypsy Kings, yeah, G I P S Y Kings, uh, a fabulous group um, from from France actually, but they sing in in Spanish and they play Spanish flamenco rumba guitar. Um, that's that was you know to become my focus for the next uh, few years. And, you know, with the group that I, I'm with, uh, Trio Caliente, we, we still play that, that style of music. So it wasn't my intention to learn it, but I'm glad I did because I love it. <laughs> now, I mean, now that you've gone, you know, years on this journey, uh -huh. what turns you on every day? Does it always change every day? Are you like really feeling Gypsy Rumba today? And then yeah. the other day, I'm really feeling I want to do some Bach. You're like, yeah, is that what it is? Is it constantly it's a, it's on a rotation? A, it's a, you know what, man? Yeah, it's like a day to day thing. It's like, um, okay, you don't eat the same thing every day for dinner. I mean, you got to have uh, your, you know, your chicken, your steak, your fish, or whatever. But like today, I woke up and I just wanted to, um, because I follow this, this thing on Instagram, it's called classical guitar, uh, uh, videos or something. And they usually have a featured performer well, every other day. And so I clicked on it and I hear this girl playing some, some music of Albana's, one of the great Spanish masters. And I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. So that inspired me. So right before we logged on to have this, this interview, I started playing that. But, 
you know, um, later on this afternoon, I'm going to be teaching a girl how to play uh, Come Together by the Beatles. So I'm really excited to show her that. And right after that, I'm going to be teaching a kid, um, you know, an Italian classical piece. So it just depends when I wake up. It's like, wow, if I hear something on the radio, like if I hear, I don't know, Sultan's a Swing or Bohemian Rhapsody, it's like, I want to grab my electric guitar and go play that. Um, it just depends on what mood I'm in. <laughs> really. How often do you compose nowadays? Not as often as I should, but I have my little, uh, uh, you know, iPhone recorder where I will play maybe 30 seconds of one idea. And then, you know, maybe a minute of another idea and not just on guitar. I play piano too, which, you know, I'm, I'm glad my mom made me take piano lessons as a kid because I hated it. <laughs> But I stuck with it because I later mm-hmm. learned how to. But in terms of composition, um, I have a lot of piano compositions. I have quite a few guitar co- compositions, and I've got a big folder with a, a stack of music that most of which has been recorded. Um, but I would say, uh, in in terms of composing an actual piece, I think I'm writing more songs with my trio, with my wife and and Ben, than I have been just writing solo guitar and piano pieces. But I would say I compose more in snippets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, and that makes total sense because you do have a lot of balls in the air. But talk yeah. about Trio Caliente and what that's meant. I mean, what's been fun about that for you? What's been fulfilling about that? Experience? You know, it's 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 the closest thing to being in a rock band. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. That uh, that I, I experience right now. <laughs> Excuse me. And I think. What's really cool is um, to be able to collaborate with my wife, Deb, who's, you know, she's also a musician, composer, yeah. voice teacher, um, actress, pianist. So it's nice to be able to share that with your partner, you know, because not, you know, not everybody has a, a life partner and a work partner, but we kind of both do the same thing. So it's really um cool to you know once in a while hey i've got this idea for a song oh really let me see if i can add something to it and and flesh it out but um you know it's really just uh something that i think every once in a while i take it for granted because it's there and it's just you expect it to be there all the time but you know it's you can't (laughs) have those expectations (laughs) um I can't let you go without uh, giving a chance to shout everything out. Obviously, we're going to talk about the concert a whole lot. So um, let people know, though, how they need to follow you, where they need to follow you, Instagrams, websites, all that yeah, stuff, Mike. Sure, yeah. Okay, sure, sure. So my band's uh, website is triocaliente.com, T-R-I-O-C-A-L-I-E-N-T-E, caliente, which means hot, the hot trio, triocaliente.com. My own website is michaelbard.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, B like boy, A-R-D, D is dog, michaelbard.com. And then uh, my Instagram handle is uh, michaelbard.10.22, which is connected to my Facebook account. And we also have the trio, Caliente, on, on uh, Instagram as well. And then if... Uh... Let's just give people from the horse's mouth. Let's give them a little bit of a tease as to why November fourth is worth their time. What 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 are you looking forward to creatively most about the fourth? What is is it to be at Carnegie Hall or is that just the content or what is it? Yep, excuse me, my throat's got a little frog here. No, you're good. Um, I I I think it's uh, several things actually. Number one, playing two of my own published compositions. 
Mediterranean Beauty for Two Guitars and my other one, uh, Prelude Sueño, which means dream. Playing those at Carnegie Hall. I mean, to be able to, to play Carnegie Hall, it's great to, to play your own music. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's just going to be so visceral and, and surreal. Um, number two, collaborating with the other artists like Jesus, who's you know one of my favorite people in the world, one of the most talented tenors you're ever going to hear. The guy studied with Placido Domingo for crying out loud. I mean, he must be good. Right? Yeah, so, right. right. Um, and uh, playing the songs that I've arranged for his album. I mean, that's that's another thing that I'm really excited about um, doing as well. And then playing with the soprano Aurora Daner, um, who's uh, a young, upcoming DC-based soprano, uh, such a talent, such a focused kid. She's only a a, a junior in high school. So wow. it's like wow. she doesn't sound like it when she sings. So when you yeah. when she opens her mouth, you're really going to say, "Oh my goodness, that is yeah. uh, an old seasoned soul right there." And then you know, playing uh, some duets uh, with my friend Benjamin Schnaki. Um, he's going to bring. Well, I guess I can mention it. He's going to bring his charango, which is a Chilean little instrument, um, kind of like a guitar, but it's more high pitched and it's got a very ethnic sort of. Uh, Andes, uh, you know, um, South American Indian kind of wow. sound, which um, we're going to wow. play a, a, a duet that um, he uh, he uh, just sent me the music actually. So I got to learn how to play. It. <laughs> 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 uh, it's it's short though; it's only like two minutes long. So, but um, all those things. But I think yeah, just you know, collaborating with other artists, playing my own pieces, and um, just the experience of hey, this is. You know, bucket list playing a card yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, 100%. And, and plus, listen. I got to say, you know, playing yeah. for, and honoring the vets, honoring the vets who, uh, you know, and again, circling back to my dad, yeah, who, who served uh, for this great nation as, as an Air Force uh, vet. Um, because it was, you know, it was the U.S., uh, the military that saved his life. So it's, it's like I'm going to be thinking about him, you know, a yeah. lot. Well, I mean, and, and your your ties to the veteran community. I mean, we didn't even get into all the yeah. mm-hmm. the, the work you've done with veterans and, right. and teaching right. music and all that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is this seems like there's so many things that are full circle about it. Mm-hmm. Um, dude, I can't wait. Yeah, can't yeah, wait. can't wait to see yeah. this. All it's going to be fun. It's going to be, be incredible, amazing. And we appreciate so much Vet Rep Theater being the presenters uh, of this concert, and we want you guys to benefit. Uh, as well and uh, we're going to make that happen chris i know listen i, listen, I, it's, I feel it it's i feel it in my heart <laughs> you guys you guys made this a layup it's like you want to be beneficiaries yeah sure <laughs> I, mean, you grab. I mean are you kidding sure um but i mean dude and it, i think for me it's been um it's been great to get to know you and deb also throughout this yeah. thanks uh, man. not 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 to bore everybody at the end of the podcast with like talking about how awesome we all are but <laughs> but i was like but like it's been you guys have put together such a great team for this mm-hmm. and it's been so fun to uh, get to know yeah. you guys and artistically what you're, what you're trying to do. And it's just such an interesting uh, set of programming. And I think people are really going to get kicked out of it. It raises eyebrows. We've announced it from the stage. Every, oh, uh, every parlor good. performance we've had good, good, and good. eyebrows pop up like a quarter of an inch. Every time well, you know, people are looking forward to it. So thanks, yeah, no, it's going to be a blast. And thanks for coming on and doing this. It was yeah. great to talk, man. So much, so much interesting stuff. And uh, we'll talk again real soon. We'll talk again in like six hours or oh, whatever yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. you know. But for um, sure. thanks for doing this, man. 
Hey, Chris, we really appreciate it. And um, just thank you, thank you, thank you, man. That was Michael Barnes' profile in Havoc. Again, that November 4th concert is going to be incredible. Go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, and get your tickets there. It is going to be an incredible night. Again, if you're a veteran and you want free tickets, you can email us at info at vetrep.org. But I'll tell you, I don't know how many donated tickets there are going to be because tickets have been going so fast. Um, I'm not sure how many could be left. So the safest thing is to get tickets yourself. But if you want to, to try to get donated tickets, by all means, email us. We'll add you to the list. Um, and uh, as donated tickets come in, we'll, we'll just be going down the list in chronological order, first come, first serve, and sending you tickets, assuming that we have some. Okay. Now, you're saying to yourself, okay, I'd love to go into Carnegie Hall and see the show on November 4th, but I'm not going to be in New York City. I'm going to be in New England. Well, boy, do we have something for you in New England just the week before Michael Bard's concert. On Halloween, Tuesday, October 31st, in Boston, Massachusetts, half a block from the Boston Commons at an undisclosed private location that we will make known to you when you are SVP. VetRep will be there presenting our latest Savage Wonderground immersive art performance titled Ghost Story. It is three floors of poetry, storytelling, music, and live painting done by such veteran artists as Nicholas F. Stathew, Iman Caffell, Dave Camposano, Dex, Ben Fortier, and Amy Sexauer. All professional veteran artists in New England. Mostly the Boston area, but not all. Um, so, a little bit of backstory with this. This is a super cool event that I'm incredibly excited about. It is essentially a Halloween party that will be unforgettable. We have a dress code. Got to wear a jacket or costume for men, a business attire costume for women as well. Um, it is a free ticket, but you do have to RSVP. That is mandatory. And we're going to hit you up for donations when you get there. I'm just letting you know because it's going to be wildly expensive to do. But um, it is an incredible evening of two events at this party. The first is our Wonderground Ghost Story event, which came about because um, I love Nick Estathew's writing across Massachusetts. I love um, how jarring and shocking his period horror stories are. What we did is we wove them in with the poetry, the stories, the music, and the live painting of all of our other veteran artists. So you have these shocking, jarring horror stories juxtaposed with incredibly tender, moving, personal. Sorry, I'm getting distracted by the fire. <laughs> the fire alarm across the street. I li- we're right next to a firehouse. This happens. Anyway, bear with us. Um, but these this juxtaposition of these incredibly moving stories and poems and emotions with outright horror transcends gore porn. It makes it something so much more, no pun intended, alarming and shocking and moving. I mean, we've got poems, we've got stuff in there about innocence lost, motherhood, unrequited love, uh, kinetic violence, like a wide range of emotions. But again, with the horror of cross Massachusetts as the backdrop, it's just a wildly cool 
fucking awesome event. I'm so looking forward to this. I cannot wait to see everybody there. As you guys know, at VetRep, we love our intimate audiences. We love having a few people there, having it a good curated event. So we're not putting out a lot of tickets for this. The space that we're in that I can't tell you what it is until you RSVP is badass. It is so incredible, but it's not huge. So we don't have that many tickets. You're going to come. You're going to be in costume or have a jacket or business attire on, and you're going to have an open bar, finger foods, and then this incredible show. Show's only about an hour. So what's going to happen after that? After that, Second Mission Foundation is going to do the official book launch for Iman Cafell's book, The Resolute Path. So it's going to be just a badass event, a badass party to go to, whether it's a date night, whether it's just going on a wild adventure, come on out. Um, go to vetrep.org. You'll see the show right there, the ability to get tickets. All the links are there. Just click on it. Come on over. And uh, yeah, we'd love to see you out there. It's going to be incredible Halloween. I'm not a big Halloween person. And this is the kind of thing that I'm like, I would go to this. I would actually dress up. I never fucking dress up on Halloween. For this, I would. I probably won't on this one just because I'm producing it, directing it, uh, and I got to do shit. But, uh, but if I were a punter, if I were one of the guests to this event, I would absolutely dress up. It's going to be really, really incredible. We've got parking. We've got it, – it's badass. It's all being laid out for you guys, and it's free. I mean, how fucking cool is that? So cheap, badass, unforgettable date night. Uh for you guys to come on out to. So we'd love to see you out there. Okay. Um, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this episode out. I think as you're listening to this, I think he's either on or just back from his honeymoon. So I uh, appreciate him getting this out in time for us. Um, I need to thank Mike Bard for coming on the show. Always great to talk to him, but especially great just to have a one-on-one conversation like this and really plumb the depths of his story. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of everybody at Havoc Journal. We'll see you next time for another profile in Havoc. 